This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. Or you can find us directly on our social media pages, Healing Paths Recovery, or directly on our website, www.healingpathsrecovery.com. And while you're there, I would love a review. Hi everyone, welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. Today's episode, I wanna talk about attachment. So I wanna talk a little bit about attachment theory and how that came to be, just a little bit on the theory, not a deep dive or anything into the theory. I also wanna talk about attachment styles. So I know I've referenced attachment, attachment styles many times before today, but today I wanted to help you as the listeners understand how attachment, your early attachment experiences can be impacting your day-to-day life as an adult. Now, attachment theory was first introduced back in the 1950s by a British psychiatrist, John Bowlby. And then Mary Ainsworth came along and expanded upon his theories. And there's been hundreds of others who have taken his theory and expanded upon them and brought us into the present and how we're looking at attachment it's had quite significant impact on, you know, how we care for children, how we understand the primary caregiver role and what they um, need to be doing for a developing infant into toddlerhood. It can have an impact on, I don't know that it's having this impact, but I think it should have an impact on early schooling with children or childcare, daycare providers, what they understand and how they need to interact with children that they are caring for because you know in a in a child's lifespan i mean especially since the 1950s they may have many people that they're interacting and interfacing with more so than they did in the 50s so i think it's helpful to understand that basically the main concept of attachment theory is that the way we learn to bond with our primary caregiver forms the way we attach to people throughout our lives it's kind of a way of teaching us Early on, really, you know, not teaching us in a school setting kind of thing, but teaching us in this felt sense, which is always, I think, more powerful than learning a concept, right? It's teaching us how to do things. Now, it's important, I think, to note that attachment theory is founded on the belief that whatever happened in our early relationships is seen in our mind as a rule for all the future ones. And we go out into the world with this blueprint, looking for things that fit this blueprint. And that this is how attachment and bonding and relationships work. This is the framework we carry with us. So like I said, John Bowlby is considered to be the father of attachment theory. He was working with children in a clinic in London. I think this was in uh, World War II. And he began to postulate the importance of a child's attachment to you know, what he identified at the time as their mother, who he thought of as the primary caregiver. He believed that children were biologically predispositioned to form attachment with others because infants depend on others to fulfill their needs for survival. And because Bobby believed that these behaviors for attachment were were formed at birth or pre-birth, he believed that this instinct could be activated by various threats such as a fear of separation. So some of the things that he believed 
was that a child has an innate need to attach to what he described as one main attachment figure. Now, I think that has changed over time, although we do still recognize that, you know, for young infants in the first two years of life, they tend to form a primary attachment with uh, the main primary caregiver. And that, you know, if that, if something happens to interrupt that attachment um, and the things that need to be developed during those years, that it could result in long-term cognitive or social or emotional difficulties. He also believed that a child should receive this continuous care of the single most important attachment figure for approximately the first two years of life. And that if that was interrupted during these critical two-year period, the child could suffer long-term consequences. Now, he also identified some of the long-term consequences of this, what he described as maternal deprivation, that it can include the following. And again, remember, this is the 1950s language, delinquency, reduced intelligence, increased aggression, depression, affectionless. And we would kind of look at that in terms of behavioral issues. Reduced intelligence, I think we would look at that as an ability to focus. So some of these kids might have ADD, making it difficult for them to, you know, learn in a school setting. They might be labeled with reduced intelligence. They may or may not actually have reduced intelligence, but that hasn't been allowed to develop in a safe way. He also thought that the child's attachment relationship with their primary caregiver would lead to the development of this internal working model. So I talked about this framework that we develop, right? That, that, that we would have this internal working model that included a model of other people being trustworthy, a model of ourself as valuable and inherently worthy, and then a model of ourself as effective when we are interacting with others. Now, I think Bowlby's theory is useful in that it helps explain how our childhood relationships with our caregivers can have a profound impact on our relationships with other people as adults, not just as children, but as adults. And again, I don't want to go heavy into his theory. There are also some criticisms of his theory. You know, one of the ones that, you know, is a common, I think, criticism of many of the uh, psychotherapy or psychology theories. Usually there's a critical feminist, you know, um, critique. Usually because most of these theories were developed by heterosexual, usually white males, seen through kind of a patriarchal lens. So putting the mother as the primary caregiver versus a primary caregiver or a team like parents being a primary caregivers. That wasn't necessarily developed or looked at back in the 50s when John Bowlby started doing his work. So, you know, there's a lot of theories that have some good substance in them and are still taught today in graduate programs. And, you know, it's not uncommon to have a feminist critique of the theory simply because we didn't have females looking at the theory, developing the theory, asking questions or giving input into the development of the theory. So that's not unusual. It's also, though to me, valid. Now, I think the point of this podcast episode, I hope, is that learning about attachment styles can help you understand and identify some of your own adult relationship patterns. Now, when we talk about attachment styles, there's four main attachment styles, and then we typically throw a fifth one in. Not that it's kind of an afterthought or not 
a significant one. It is a significant one. We just talk about it differently. So there's four main attachment styles we have as a result of how we bonded with our primary caregivers. Now, each one of these experiences with our primary caregivers, and again, Bobby was really looking at the first two years of life. I think when we're expanding it, we're looking at the first three to four years of life. But we know that each of these experiences shape the way that we, number one, view ourselves, and number two, view others, and then number three, view attachment or relationships or connections with others. Now, obviously, we're not seeing it that way when we're young, but it is shaping and influencing how we see relationships, how we see attachment or connection with others. So what are the four main attachment styles? I talked about this previously, I think in my episode on developing a solid sense of self. So you have the secure attachment style and then the other three of the main ones will throw in the fourth one though. So the other four are categories under insecure attachment styles. So let's start off with secure attachment. So secure attachment happens when our primary caregiver is responsive and responsible with our needs. We have a secure place as we start to walk and, you know, explore the world a little bit. We have a secure place to wander out and explore the world. But we also know that we have this place to turn to if things get scary or overwhelming. You know, I remember as I was a therapist prior to becoming a mom. And so as I had my own children and I would notice this, you know, if let's say we were playing out at the park or something and they'd start to wander away, go to explore something, but then they'd look back and they would see that I was there, that I was watching them. And usually that encouraged them to go explore some more, right? Knowing, I mean, my two-year-old can't keep herself safe, but the fact that mom is there, mom is watching, mom sees what's going on, not just kind of distracted reading my own book or talking to my friends and not even paying attention to my toddler, And instead I'm attuned and I'm watching and I'm giving permission to explore. I'm giving permission to move away from, but also saying, I'm right here. I got you. If something happens, I'm going to move in, bring you back to safety. If you start to climb on something and I don't know that you know how to climb yet, I'm going to bring you down or I might climb up with you and, you know, take you down the slide, that type of stuff. So, you know, in secure attachment, our minds learn in this simplest of terms that, like I said, that we as individuals are trustworthy, that we're competent, that we can do things and we can do things well enough. We're going to learn that other people are trustworthy and that this bond, this attachment between us is trustworthy. The second attachment style is what we would call anxious attachment Sometimes it's referred to as insecure, ambivalent. I typically call it preoccupied. Now, I know when you go out there on, you know, Google and start typing in attachment styles, you're going to come up with different language. I know a couple of years ago, there was a book that came out called Attached that a lot of my clients were reading. Several of them asked me to read it. I believe in that book, there were only actually three attachment styles, which that, I think that was the first time I'd only see them described or put into three different categories. And sometimes the, you know, the wording of the type of attachment style is slightly different, slightly off. I like the one, 
looking at, it comes, you know, if you're going to take an attachment assessment, the one I'm most familiar with, it's called ECR, Emotionally Close Relationships. And, you know, there, there will be a attachment style quiz or assessment you can take that kind of graphs and charts your attachment style. Now, one of the things, if I back up, I want to state first, when we're looking at the different types of attachment styles, and this includes the secure attachment style, when they're, you know, assessing it and plotting your answers on a graph, this is, I think, why I like the ECR one so well is because it kind of shows it plotted on a graph. I mean, although it's a computer screen, so it's not actual graph paper, but it's looking at the coordinates between anxiety and avoidance. So anxiousness in relationship, avoidance in relationship. So, you know, we would see in secure attachment, there's not high anxiety. There's also not high avoidance, which makes sense because they feel like others are safe. Others are trustworthy. I know how to be trustworthy. I am safe. So what is to be anxious about? What is there to avoid? So in this next one that I'm talking about, the second one, this ambivalent or anxious attachment style, like I said, I typically call it a preoccupied attachment style. This attachment style forms when our caregiver is inconsistent. Maybe they have an illness, whether that's a physical illness or a mental illness that makes them somewhat unpredictable. Or they may have had other things going on in their life, other big things that drew their energy, drew their attention there, like family dysfunction, a dysfunctional marriage, or, you know, a divorce, infidelity in the marriage. So that inconsistency or unpredictability on the part of the primary caregiver would result in the child's brain not being able to predict that this primary caregiver is going to be there when the child needs them. And as a result, you know, there's going to be some panic on the part of the child when there's separation because there's, you know, that separation anxiety. We're not sure if this person goes away that they're coming back. The child isn't going to develop a sense of security around themselves. And so instead, there's a lot of insecurity and unknown about who they are as a person. And as children often do, the child is going to internalize this instability as some inherent defect in themselves. They're going to start to preoccupy or maybe overly focus on the attachment figure in order to try to create a sense of security, kind of that thinking, if you're okay, I'll be okay. Ultimately, in preoccupied attachment style, the child really doesn't feel okay. We wouldn't say that there's a true sense of security because the bond for them just feels insecure. People with a preoccupied attachment style have a strong desire for intimacy and close relationships, but there's also that fear of abandonment or rejection, which is what creates the anxiety. There's not a lot of avoidance for a preoccupied person. Their avoidance is low. They want to have relationships. They might do better or see themselves or define themselves through that lens of the relationship and feel better when they're in relationship. But they aren't necessarily going to feel secure in themselves. And there's going to be that high anxiety because of that fear of abandonment or rejection. Sometimes they're described as being clingy. I don't necessarily love that word, although I understand why it gets used. And I think I've even known people who I think that word fits for. I just feel like that word has a negative connotation. So I don't want to turn people off. If you've been identifying with this and I use that word clingy and it just kind of like doesn't sit well with you, 
I understand that. I do understand that. I would say that there's just this over focus or this high need for a relationship. They're also going to have difficulty trusting others and they're going to have difficulty regulating their own emotions. Now, the third attachment style also falls under insecure attachment style. And I've, I've seen it called two different ways. Sometimes it's called anxious avoidant attachment. Sometimes it's called fearful avoidant. So I like both of those. There's high anxiety. There's also high avoidance with this one. But the anxiety is really stemming from this fear, this fear about the attachment. And so the solution to the fear or the way that the individual has learned to cope with the fear around the relationship is to be avoidant. So this attachment style is formed when our primary caregiver doesn't respond to our needs with sensitivity or care. Again, they might respond to our needs. And I think it's important when we again remind ourselves we're looking at how this happened in the first three to four years of our life. John Bowlby talked about the first two years of our life, which definitely put it in that pre-memory, pre-verbal state. So we're not really going to have memories here, but we are going to resonate with different types of attachment styles, which can tell us something about those early years. And again, you know, I often say, you know, parents may not have known the damage they were doing. They may have been doing the best they could. They may have thought like, I am taking care of this child physically, but the child is literally plugging into the nervous system of their caregivers. And so they're picking up how that feels. And it may not feel like, you know, a lot of warmth, a lot of sensitivity, a lot of attunement. So again, for the anxious avoidant or fearful avoidant, they're going to feel alone in their needs, their worries and concerns. They're also going to learn that they're better at navigating their needs and emotions just completely on their own. Feels better not to need other people. Or they might learn that they are the only person that they can actually trust when it comes to getting their needs met. So maybe they learn, you know, that they are trustworthy, but they don't necessarily see that the other is trustworthy. And attachment in general really isn't helpful for folks with this attachment style. And so you can see this leading to isolating or what I call engaging in toxic independence, which is, you know, thinking I can do it myself and why can't everybody do it themselves? It works out so well. And often they can miss the fact because they feel so maybe competent themselves at meeting their wants and needs. They miss the fact that that's actually not relational or that maybe I have dialed up my independence to where, again, you know, I've said before on the podcast, we wouldn't necessarily recognize that as true independence. I think independence really requires us in a pretty balanced way, navigating our needs for closeness and our needs for separateness. And with the fearful avoidant, you know, the fearfulness is the togetherness. And we didn't really learn to navigate that or how we learn to navigate that is to avoid togetherness and prioritize separateness. Now, the fourth attachment style is what is referred to as a dismissive attachment style. This can also be known as the dismissive avoidant attachment style. So again, we're going to see the person avoiding, which is similar to what I just talked about with the 
fearful avoidant, but this individual is dismissively avoidant. So this attachment style is formed when our primary caregiver was unavailable or rejecting during our infancy and early development. And because our needs were never met, and we could predict that outcome, that my needs are not going to be met, we were kind of forced to distance ourselves emotionally and to self-soothe. So individuals with a dismissive attachment style could have difficulty expressing their emotions. They might even have difficulty understanding that they have needs in close relationships or a need for close relationships. They're going to have trouble trusting others. They're avoidant in that they distance themselves from others and avoid intimacy or they avoid getting too close with others as a way of protecting themselves from what they would see as potential harm. And usually they have a dismissive attitude toward close relationships. Like I said, they're often denying the need that they have for one. Now, they don't typically score high on the anxious scale. So that's what's going to make it different than fearful avoidant. For fearful avoidant or anxious avoidant, they're scoring high on anxiety. They're also scoring high on avoidance. And with dismissive avoidant, they're not scoring high on anxiety, but they are scoring high on the avoidant scale. For these individuals, you know, they might view themselves as self-sufficient, again, independent, but they're also going to usually deny their need for these close connecting relationships. Whereas I just want to be able to help you distinguish between the fearful avoidant and the dismissive avoidant. Fearful avoidance know they have this need for relationships. It's just overwhelmed by this fear that they're going to be rejected. They're going to be abandoned. It's going to hurt worse. Whereas dismissive is more dismissing of that need. They wouldn't necessarily see themselves having a need for close, vulnerable, intimate relationships. They also might have a negative view of others and an underlying fear of getting hurt. Again, that may not fully be known to them, but what is driving that dismissiveness and the avoidance is this underlying fear of being rejected or being hurt. So like I said, the main difference between fearful avoidant attachment and dismissive avoidant attachment is that fearful avoidance tend to shy away from closeness because of fear, while dismissive avoidance do so because they disregard the importance of connection with others and they're actually quite wary of that connection with others. Now, again, that's the four main categories that I was talking about. There's a fifth style and it's not less, it's just different, right? So this one we call the disorganized attachment. And it's a little bit different from the other ones because, you know, the first four types that I just went through, the secure, preoccupied, fearful avoidant, dismissive avoidant, those four types of attachments tend to be somewhat organized. And what that means is that when we were young, our brains develop this coherent, predictable, even if it's an unhelpful script, but it developed this model for how to navigate the relationship and how to navigate around our caregiver. Again, not necessarily in secure ways. The one way was secure, but in the other ways, it developed this, you know, kind of pattern or template that says, here is how I interact with, navigate this other person. 
Now, you know, typically when we talk with clients or even when we talk in our groups about attachment styles, I'll usually say, you know, there's a lot of things in psychology that we talk about in therapy that we kind of give you these models, we give you these labels, we give you these quadrants, and then we describe what that means. And that's all very helpful. And we kind of get an understanding of the attachment styles. And then we say, now the trick is, these are human beings. And human beings are more complex than theories, although some of the theories are quite complex. But human beings don't nicely fit into labels or categories or quadrants. They can be different sometimes, right? So I do want to give that caveat or that disclaimer that we're talking about these styles and I will even say there's some organization about their template or what they learned going forward that they kind of put in as scaffolding to operate around. But it's also not that cut and dry, right? It's not that black and white. So let's go back to this fifth kind of attachment style, which is disorganized attachment. So for example, like our folks in the preoccupied category or the ones who are in the avoidant categories, whether it's fearful or dismissive. With disorganized attachment, our child brain really couldn't figure out a good strategy that was pretty predictable. Disorganized attachment usually develops as a result of inconsistent and frightening experiences in early childhood. The caregiver shows maybe atypical behavior. Maybe they're abusive or rejecting. Maybe they're close but manipulative. And we don't know whether to move towards them or away from them. Sometimes the primary caregiver is both a source of comfort and a source of fear. And that's going to lead to a disorganized attachment in that it depends on the day or it depends on these cues that I learn to tap into, but I don't necessarily know if they're that predictive. So typically we can feel if this is your attachment style, you're going to feel afraid, confused, that can play out in a variety of ways in adulthood. You know, we might, like the preoccupieds, be clinging one moment to this need for a relationship. And then, you know, a month later, we're dismissive of this relationship or even rejecting of this person. Those individuals with disorganized attachment styles have a hard time trusting themselves. They're going to have a hard time trusting others. And sometimes they may long for attachment and other times they're going to fear it altogether. So again, in, in this attachment style, it can really feel like a no-win attachment style because sometimes I have the longing for attachment. Other times I'm quite minimizing or even rejecting of that need for attachment. So those are basically the five attachment styles. And like I said, they're not that easily laid out. But we, I think we lay them out in these categories to help people understand now, there is some attachment research that says, you know, by the time a child leaves home, so around 18, 19, something like that, their attachment style is pretty much set. Now, again, we, we say those things, we have research that shows that, but, you know, if, if things are set in stone, why do I have a job, right? So nothing's really set because, again, the, the bad news would be, you know, if you, if you didn't get therapy before you were 18, which, you know, your brain isn't fully developed, your relationship experiences aren't that varied, you don't have that many opportunities, different things like that. Like, so of course your 
life experience or your life wisdom isn't fully accomplished by the time you're leaving home, you know, otherwise we'd just be like, yeah, you drew the short straw and sucks to be you or too bad for you, right? But instead we know that there is some ways that we can heal those initial attachment injuries and move more towards a secure attachment. So as we grow up, you know, we we do carry with us these beliefs or these ways of being from these attachment styles. We're going to, you know, carry a view of ourselves, a view of others, and a view of attachment or a view of connection, a view of relationship. But again, hopefully, we're also going to get some more healing experiences. I mean, we can also get some experiences that reinforce and repeat those messages that we got or those patterns that we learned early in our life. You know, it's going to repeat those, reinforce those. We're going to be like, definitely this happens. But there's three key things, you know, I usually will say to clients, again, when we're talking about attachment style, this isn't a pass that you get. You don't get to say, sorry, I'm just dismissive in my dismissive and avoidant. So sorry, I was kind of rude and then walked in the other room and ignored you the whole night. That doesn't go, right? It doesn't go to say, sorry, I just am so desperate for a relationship. I'm not giving you your space or I'm not respecting your boundary. We don't get to use our attachment style as a pass. I think it's always helpful if we have a lens in which to understand ourselves, understand why we do things we do, maybe why we are the way we are today, why we approach relationships in a certain way, maybe even indicate why our relationships aren't working. But I think often the goal of adult relationships, well, at least for me, the goal of adult relationships or the goal of adulthood is to earn back a secure attachment or to have an an additional response that lands us more in the secure attachment field so that we can start to understand ourselves better. So we can start to get our needs and our wants met through relationships. Now, with a lot of clients that I work with, we start off exploring and understanding their attachment style, how it formed, how it kept them safe. That's really one of the ways that, you know, we organized in order to keep ourselves safe. But I also want to look at how it harmed them you know, how it worked and how it didn't work. We might look at relationship timelines, you know, tell me, let's just go over a history of the relationships you've, that have been significant in your life. Now, these are going to include both romantic and non-romantic, like friendships or coaches, teachers, other adults, other peers. So that's one starting point. But because we're humans and we don't live in a vacuum, we also can't just look at our attachment style in isolation. So it's, it's one thing to consider our attachment style and all of the history that went into the making of us before this particular relationship, right? But we can't just look at our attachment style in isolation and assume that everybody else has this secure attachment style and I'm the only one with the insecure attachment style. Like I said, it's one thing to consider but we're one person in a relationship. And because this is a relationship, that indicates there's at least one other human being in this dynamic. So we have our attachment style, and then there is this other's attachment style. 
sometimes I picture it as like, okay, I am here kind of like on, you know, at the mall, when you have that map of the store, when you're trying to find different stores and it says you are here. And I arrived with all of my stuff, all of my issues, all of my experiences from my story, which, you know, I don't really want the other person that I'm moving towards or having a relationship with to join me over where I am because it's not all that functional. And I can assume that the other is over there with all that is theirs, all that brought them to that point. And, you know, it's probably not best for me to just go over and live from that place either. So I picture this middle ground in between where I am and where they are that both of us are trying to move towards. So what I would label that middle ground is a healthy view of attachment, maybe even a secure attachment, the way we are with each other in this relationship that creates and develops security. And I I think that's always going to be different depending on the two individuals who are doing that, right? So we don't have one, like, here is a description of the relationship model and everybody needs to fit that if you want a secure attachment. What it means is we both have to bring our stuff in and we have to start working towards what would be a secure attachment. So now let's complicate this example. Let's say in this example, maybe I'm for the most part securely attached. We could also say the other person is securely attached, but I'm just going to go with, let's say that I'm securely enough attached. Now I'm going to have an impact on them. If they're insecurely attached, I'm going to have an impact on them. They're also going to have an impact on me for good or bad, right? Like often we think of therapy, hopefully that's a positive relationship and the overall impact is moving you more towards secure attachment. But if, you know, if we take a securely attached individual and they somehow find themselves in a relationship with a dismissive avoidant, that could do some damage. That dismissive avoidant could do some damage. You know, I, I don't know that any of us arrive at adulthood without a need for therapy, without a need to evaluate, look back on, assess some things, decide what we take forward, what we don't. You know, these relationship attachments, I kind of see them as, again, I'm not a good mathematical person, but I see them as, you know, we're always either adding some things or subtracting some things, probably some of both. And we're ending up with this bottom line score. Is it overall good for me or bad for me? Well, maybe it depends on where I'm at in the relationship, right? Maybe it's been rough and we've had to work through some things, but I think we're going to get through some these things. So I would say overall, I think it's okay. You know, we've learned, we've grown, we've both changed, we understand each other better and looks like it's going to work out. And I might rate that as overall positive, right? Net positive. But if I'm in that place where I don't know, I don't know if we're going to get through this, that can be a scary place, you know? And then if we add to that, whatever our default attachment style is, we're adding to that other issues, other beliefs, other experiences that felt insecure, that felt uneasy, that felt distressing. So ultimately in in our adult relationships, both of us are having to move because again, it's not fair to say you just come be like me or I'll just come be like you. We're both in a need to grow and develop our relationship this one for this relationship. We can't just pick this one up and plop it down in a different relationship. 
with a different person and assume that that's going to work. So both individuals in the relationship are going to have to do some moving in order to figure out this particular relationship dynamic. Now, for the one who is insecurely attached and avoidant, this could be really hard to do. Might feel like it's going against your gut instincts or it's compromising your safety. And the bottom line is, yeah, it is. It's going to be hard. It does go against what you had to learn, how you learn to be safe, how you learn to protect yourself. And so you're going to need to keep that awareness with you that how you have been, what you learned is no longer serving you, which is maybe why you're at this place with this new person, finding yourself a little bit more open to new ways of being, new ways of doing things. Hopefully I can lean on my healthy or safe sense of this other person. This is why I'm with them and remind myself that, you know, they're not judging me. They have some patience and understanding with what I'm wrestling with. They want me to succeed and that they love and care for me. I can also lean into what I'm learning that's healthy or what secure attachment looks like. Now, again, I still might have some default attachment reactions, but I can also learn and develop a second response that is more in line with what I want to have in my relationships or what I think looks like a secure attachment. And that second response can come pretty quickly or even overlap with my default attachment style. So what are we going to need for that movement to happen, right? That movement towards the both individuals starting to try to learn a new way of being safe and secure with each other. Well, first, we're going to need to have a sense of security in ourselves. In the work we've been doing on ourselves, the changes that we know we've made, maybe some of those changes have been pointed out to us by others. We're also going to need a sense of security in our sense of self, what I know about myself, what I know about my wants and needs, what works and what doesn't work for me. I also need to have security in my value and worth. That as myself, who I am, I am worth wanting. I deserve love. And I also need to have some security around if this relationship doesn't work out, I will be okay. So I want to be part of relationships, but I want to be part of relationships in which I'm safe and secure and I can grow and develop. And I can also do that for this other person. So once we have that, we have a sense of ourself or an image or a view of ourself that is secure, secure enough. Usually then we're going to start adding in the other. Now, one of the things, so, you know, we work at our clinic, we work with a lot of couples who have experienced infidelity or some type of compulsive sexual behavior that has, you know, led to a sense of betrayal trauma for their partners And they're not necessarily calling it quits, but they're just not sure where to go, what to do, how to navigate this, what feels like a really big issue in the relationship. And it is a big issue in the relationship. So often it's not uncommon for us to get that initial inquiry reaching out to us, whether it's a phone call or an email or a text saying, you know, we want couples work. And typically, you know, we're kind and saying, "Mm, if you're a client that fits our specialty, that's not where we're going to start. 
Now, sometimes we try to, you know, have a phone call or we're trying to establish a connection. So we're not, you know, just they're asking for one thing and we're saying no. We're trying to kind of gently say no and let them know why. And this would be one of the reasons why, right? Neither of you right now has that sense of security in yourself. So maybe you had it previously before this discovery, but I can guarantee you if this discovery is there, that sense of insecurity has gotten really wobbly. And so we need to reestablish that. Maybe you as well came in with some attachment issues. We're going to have to work through some of that. And so we're going to need to establish some security in each individual before we start taking it to the relationship. Now, again, we, we will do some joint sessions with both therapists and both individuals in the coupleship in the same room together. And the therapists are trying to hold them and guide them, you know, in boundary setting or just regulating with each other in the room. But before we can move kind of to the relationship work, we need that piece under, you know, under work. We need that individual piece kind of going. Then we're going to need to develop security around the other, right? Which for some people, that was where things got rocky. You know, I feel like I can meet my needs and wants, or I learned that it's safer for me to meet my needs and wants. It's this other that I have a lot of question marks around or a lot of distrust around. So we need to also develop security that the other person is able to be trusted. That what they're doing over there is developing stability and security for them to be able to share their needs and to not be overly dependent on us or to not be overly avoidant of us. We need to start developing the security that this other is safe they can be trusted with my needs and wants. And then the third component is we're looking at, you know, the relationship or the attachment itself. So sometimes I will, you know, when I'm picturing this, I, I think of, you know, like this link or this, you know, I kind of think of it as a wire kind of linking the two of you together. And I want to know, does that feel secure? Does it feel smothering? Does it feel stable? You know, the relationships we're a part of, like I said, can either increase or decrease our security. You know, if you feel like you need to get out or to move into avoidant, is that your stuff? Is it their stuff? Have we built a relationship in which we can bring this up and have a conversation and feel safe and remain stable in having that conversation? You know, sometimes we need to ask ourselves, does this relationship pose a threat to your sense of self. That might be something to explore a little bit different because we might be looking at, hey, are we repeating some dysfunctional patterns? Or are you uncomfortable in this relationship because it calls you out to develop and grow more into who you are? And that's never really felt safe before. So I don't even know what to do with that. You know, is this relationship necessary for my sense of self? Well, it shouldn't be. It can add to my sense of self if it's secure. But if I need it to have a sense of self, I might need to go back and work on securing more of myself as an individual. Am I overly dependent on this relationship or do I easily get lost in this relationship? So each attachment style that I talked about is going to have a different relationship with these three concepts. The concept of security in the image you have of yourself, security or trust that you have in the image of another person, 
And can I create a vision of a healthy relationship that is realistic, not perfection, but realistic, that this other person and I am both able to do those things. So, you know, just take a minute, just take a second, quick second, and just kind of think through those questions. If you identified more with one of those attachment styles, again, just kind of think through those questions. You can hit the rewind button. Is that what it's called anymore? The 30 second button, I think it is. Because each of the different attachment styles is going to have a different relationship with those three things. The view of self, the view of others, and the view of connection or attachment or relationship. So let's talk a little bit about what those views might be. So again, let's start with securely attached because that one is just pretty easy, right? So if we're securely attached, we're going to operate from the view that we're trustworthy. Our partners can be trustworthy and that attachment and bonds are helpful and safe in our adult relationships. Our view of self is secure, meaning we tend to have a sense of our own self-worth. Now, again, it's not that we think we're perfect, but we do feel secure in who we are. We can take responsibility for our mistakes and our weaknesses. We can express our needs and seek help if we need it. We can ask for help if we need it. We feel capable of navigating hard things. We feel capable of navigating conflict. Conflict is just a part of the relationship, but we're going to work through it. And we're comfortable with deep, meaningful connection. We're able to be seen and known on a deep level. We're also able to see and know the other on a deep level. Our view of others is that, you know, they can be trustworthy, like I said, not perfection. But we also are not expecting them to fail us or betray us. You know, when they make mistakes, we're not shattered. We're not idealistic. I never thought you would do this to me. It's not really realistic in relationships. You know, the other person is going to step on our toes sometimes. The other person is going to make a decision that they factored in what is best for them without fully thinking about us. That happens. But when the mistakes are made, you know, we're looking for, whether that's in ourselves or the other, we're looking for healthy accountability, responsibility. We're looking for repair. You know, like I said, we have a belief that we're going to work through the issues that arise knowing there will be issues that arise, right? But we're going to work through them. It's going to deepen or strengthen our connection. You know, we believe other people can regulate their own emotions. So I'm not responsible for their emotions. I can add support to or validation to, but I know others can regulate their own emotions. And also they and we can be vulnerable and we operate as if attachment itself is a good and helpful thing for us as a human being. You know, we kind of have this approach to relationships that I'm good in relationships. I want to be a part of relationships. Relationships aren't something that I avoid. It's also not something that I have to have, right? It's not that I would rather be in any relationship than be on my own. We don't approach it that way either because we know that we would be bound to make some mistakes. When our partner needs space or when we need space, you know, it's just about needing space versus thinking they want to leave me. They don't love me. They're abandoning me. And when they move towards us, we're happy for them to lean on us. We rely on them, some too, and we can manage this conflict together. When issues from our past arise, we don't overreact. 
we also don't take it personal. And we understand that healing from our past will show up in our relationship and that the relationship offers an opportunity for a corrective relational experience. Now, secure attachment doesn't mean our relationships are perfect. And it doesn't mean we never get into unhealthy relationships either. But we do know secure attachment is associated with higher levels of healthy partnerships. Now, if we're insecurely attached, let's look at this through the preoccupied lens. So in preoccupation, we operate from the view that we aren't okay on our own. We lack self-esteem, and so we cling to others using their love and this bond itself to help us feel safe in our adult relationships and to feel worthy as an individual. We lack a secure sense of self, and we really aren't sure if we're truly lovable. We aren't sure if we're good enough. So we're constantly trying to prove our worth. We may feel a lot of fear and anxiety. Like I've said before, we use that word clingy. It's an over-reliance on the relationship. Our view of others can be one of being, you know, dependent on them to fulfill us or define us. Sometimes we push away, but usually that's only because we're afraid of abandonment. We've sensed that abandonment might be coming, and so I push away. But my hope is that you pursue me and repair We tend to function as though being picked by somebody else will give us the worth we have been longing for our whole life. If this person wants us, then I'm finally, finally worth wanting. And that being wanted will fix all of our other attachment injuries. The way we think of attachment is we long for the attachment that brings this sense of closeness and intimacy that was lacking. But we also don't quite know how to bring that sense of closeness and intimacy. So we're hoping this other person does that for me. Now, realistically, if the other person can do that, if the other person is more securely attached, we still may not trust it. So a preoccupied attachment style can cause us to struggle with boundaries. Usually it looks like not wanting to set any because that could lead to abandonment, upset in the relationship. We don't want to push anybody away or put up a wall because, you know, they just might leave us all together. This also usually means we're going to fear conflict and we're going to do whatever we can to avoid conflict or to resolve conflict as soon as possible. So this can look like making it feel like, you know, if there's conflict, it means the whole relationship has been unstable when that probably isn't the case feeling unworthy and wanting to run when we see that our issues are causing conflict in the relationship, when maybe the other person just wants to talk about it. Maybe not. Maybe they're, you know, not securely attached. You know, an individual could also feel like without conflict, they get really anxious or uptight, not knowing how to interpret this lack of conflict. Like, what does that even mean? And then does the lack of conflict mean that you don't love me and you're getting ready to leave me? Maybe in the past, conflict served the purpose of creating space or separateness in overly enmeshed relationships. And we just don't know how to differentiate without conflict in preoccupied attachment style. We can also become overly fixated on relationships and approach them kind of in a binge purge manner where we need to get a lot of reassurance because in general, this bond 
feels very necessary for me. It also feels unstable and that makes it easily threatened. Now, if we're insecure and we tend to be fearful avoidant, we may have a sense of security with ourself, but we do not trust other people and we may not feel safe in relationships. So again, you know, that would cause me to question that sense of security with yourself. Our view of ourself, you know, would be secure in some ways. However, in fearful avoidant, we trust ourselves and ourselves alone, which really is not a good relationship approach. You know, we kind of think that we alone are able to meet our needs. We like being independent. Again, I think we misuse that word independent all the time to try to make it mean things it doesn't actually mean. But we are going to, in fearful avoidance, we're going to like being independent because when I'm on my own, I don't feel a lot of anxiety. And if someone tries to care for us, it might feel inappropriate. If somebody needs us, that might feel threatening. Now, our view of others depends on the relationship, right? The closer they get to us, the more we might be turned off by their needs. We might see those as weaknesses or vulnerabilities. We might think of them as being too needy or clingy, even if they are not actually. Our view is that others should be just like us. They should meet their own needs. They shouldn't ask us for help. They shouldn't lean on others for support. In fearful avoidant, we might operate as if attachment itself can be a threat to our personal security. Attachment might feel too confining. And maybe we think of ourselves as a person who doesn't need attachment anyway. Intimacy and closeness could feel like a threat to our freedom. And we could prefer just short-term flings or relationships without any commitment. So again, let me back up because I was talking about fearful avoidant, but those are similar with fearful and dismissive. So again, in dismissive avoidant, we can have a sense of security with ourselves. We are not going to trust other people. We're probably going to dismiss our need to be in a relationship. We're going to see ourselves as secure. And if we are causing stress for our relationship partner, because we're not very relational, we're going to see that as their issue, their problem. Again, in dismissive avoidant, we like to be independent. If somebody tries to care for us, we may not even notice it. We probably will minimize it. We would feel mistrustful of closeness in relationship. We might feel smothered by those trying to get close to us or trying to care for us. We might wonder if there are strings attached with things that they do for us. Intimacy and closeness, like with fearful avoidance, can also feel like a threat to our freedom, to our independence. Again, don't like that word, but that's how we would see it in dismissive avoidant. And we might also prefer short-term flings or relationships without any commitment. Sometimes, you know, when I'm working with sex addicts, they might not even really remember their name or want to know much about them. And again, sometimes, you know, other people might be like, isn't that psychopathy? Isn't that sociopathy? Not necessarily. No, we don't know that. Can it be there? Sure. Does that mean that that's the case? Are, are dismissive, avoidant people um, psychopaths? No, not necessarily. That's not what we're saying here. It just means in a childhood where their needs were met with harshness, 
where things were not predictable, they can end up doing things that, yeah, maybe run counterculture to what we think of as acceptable in our society. But I think we need to start questioning a lot of things that we think of as normal in our society and start understanding more about the attachment theory and what might have happened in this person's upbringing or might not have happened that they really needed. And then finally, if we have disorganized attachment, our view of self is low. Our view of others is that they're unpredictable and relationships themselves can feel frightening and unsafe. Our view of self is that we're undeserving of love. Typically, we're not able to regulate our emotions well. We're not really able to self-soothe. But unlike with preoccupied attachment, who you know might try to meet this need by clinging to others, even if we don't feel safe with them, we in disorganized attachment might turn to other coping skills like drugs, alcohol, self-injury, eating disorder behavior. Now, our view of others can fluctuate sometimes. We might feel extreme love or connection. Sometimes we might feel extreme hate. We may find ourselves expecting a partner to meet our needs or feeling the exact opposite, that no one can meet my needs, no one can help me, no one can love me. Our view of relationships also fluctuates. We can find ourselves longing for closeness and intimacy, but our view of ourselves and others might keep us trapped in a cycle of self-sabotage or even abuse. Now, again, when we're talking about attachment styles, I think it's helpful to know that our brains are wired to learn from our observations of others, our experiences, our interactions with others, and kind of co-regulate. So that's that process of, you know, if I'm around people who have a healthier attachment style than I do, that's going to improve my ability to move towards a secure attachment. Now, you know, sometimes I will joke with friends, maybe they're in the preoccupied, they land more organized in the preoccupied way, but they'll say, you know, my, I tend to be preoccupied, but my mother is extremely preoccupied. And so when I'm interacting with my mother, I tend to be more avoidant because holy cow, that's preoccupied, right? So again, sometimes how we show up or maybe the level of that attachment style varies depending on how we're interacting with this other person, what we're picking up from them, what we're sensing from them, and maybe who they remind us of or who they actually are in our formative years. So I think it's important here to remind ourselves that we can all experience relationships where we end up feeling insecure about ourselves or untrusting of our partner or the instability of the bond between us. Attachment itself is more about the patterns that we see in ourselves and the relationships we're part of. So, you know, again, in any moment in a relationship, we might be feeling some insecurity about ourselves, our partner, the stability of our relationship. With attachment issues, we're looking at, is this repeatedly happening? And if we can look back and see the same type of relationship or the same issues in a relationship happening again and again, If you find yourself repeatedly in relationships that don't seem healthy or they don't feel right, it might be good to take a look at these patterns and ask yourself, how is your view of yourself impacting the type of relationship that you're seeking? 
How is your view of others impacting your relationships? And then also, how is your view of relationships or connections themselves impacting these relationships? So what can you do if one of these insecure attachment style describes you? Can you change? Well, yes, the answer is yes. First, I usually encourage individuals to lean into the difficult parts that resonated with you. If you were reading a book, if you were listening to this podcast or some other podcast on attachment, don't shy away from the parts that resonated with you. Maybe they made you angry. Maybe you're reading a book and you want to huck that book across the room. What did that say and who can you talk to about that? Now, don't blame yourself. Don't be critical, but start paying attention to what is resonating because if we don't notice it, we can't change it. We can't move in a better direction if we don't know where we've come from. And it really helps for us to identify some of these unhealthy attachment or relationship patterns that we've had in our lives so that we don't continue repeating them. Now, I know, like I said, we've all felt at one time or another, like, what is my problem? Do I have some magnet attached to me that keeps attracting dysfunctional people? Why does this keep happening to me? Well, the painful truth is that the difficulty you've had in your relationships could be related to your attachment style. And recognizing that and working slowly to change those default settings so that you can pick better partners along with working on yourself so you feel more secure with who you are can make a really big difference. If what you've heard in this podcast episode has caused some pain in you to well up, I will say this is painful work. It's important to keep in mind that healing from an insecure attachment style is a process that takes time, patience, practice, and an openness to work through the challenges. It will be helpful to work with a mental health professional who works from an interpersonal approach. Group therapy can also be a healing part or a helpful part of your healing. One of the sayings that I will often tell my clients is that when trauma is relational, and so often trauma is relational, the healing also has to be relational. So the bad news, if you are identifying with the avoidant part, the avoidant attachment styles, and you're thinking to yourself, I'll do that on my own. I will fix this attachment style on my own. It's not going to work. The injury happened relationally. And the healing has to happen relationally. It's going to involve another person, maybe many other people. It is important to understand your attachment style and the impact of your childhood experiences on your attachment style in order to start to move towards healthy, secure, and satisfying relationships. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and education and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I'm not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.